The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight, uh, we're going to continue our study in uh, systematic theology. We're looking um, in the, uh, the, the whole major topic of the doctrine of, of man. And if you didn't get a handout there, in the back there, I hope I made enough tonight. Um, didn't last time. But we're looking tonight at the issue of sin. And uh, just to get a sense of where we are in our study on the doctrine of man in Wayne Grudem's book, again, the material that I'm taking from his book, uh, I think he does a great job organizing this. There's lots of different ways to come at systematic theology, but I think he does a good job. Um, it may be that you'll find tonight's topic a little more applicable to your life than last week's topic on the essential nature of man, but that's okay. Not all stars shine equally brightly in God's cosmos. So tonight we're going to be studying, I think, a, a doctrine which everyone sees the significance to and the importance of, and that's the doctrine of sin. And we're not going to finish it tonight. Um, we'll be resuming it when I get back from Poland, God willing. Uh, in our uh, study on the, over, uh, the doctrine of man, we've already talked about the creation of man. Uh, that man was created in the image of God, why man was created. We've talked also about man as male and female, what God intended in this uh, beautiful thing called gender and how God set up male and female for the uh, sake of personal relationships. Uh, we talked at that point in, about equality and personhood and importance and difference in roles, something that's very hard for non-Christians to understand, but we believers, we understand it because we see it in the doctrine of the Trinity, don't we? Uh, equality of significance of the person, but different roles. And so that's what we discussed. We uh, also talked about marriage briefly. Last week, we talked about this issue of trichotomy and dichotomy. The, uh, are we essentially three parts, body, soul, and spirit, or two parts, a material and immaterial part uh, that's called sometimes soul and sometimes spirit? So we got into all that last time. Now, tonight, we're going to be uh, beginning to look at the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of sin. We're going to give a definition of sin, look at what sin is, how we define it. We're going to talk as best we can about the origin of sin. And basically, one of, the ba one of the things I want to say about sin and evil is that we really don't ultimately know where it comes from. The Bible puts some boundaries around our thinking, and we're going to talk about what those boundaries are. Uh, they have to do with the uh, nature of God and His his uh, stance toward evil, but also his stance toward the universe. Uh, and so therein lies the mystery. He is pure and good and righteous. Also, at the same time, he is sovereign and rules over all things. How do you put those together with the emergence of evil in this good universe that God originally created? We'll talk about that and try to understand as best we can. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the doctrine of what Grudem calls inherited sin. Uh, usually it's called original sin. And uh, we'll discuss that briefly. Now, we're not going to get to uh, the idea of actual sins in our lives or punishment of sin. Uh, God willing, we'll get to that next time. Okay? So that's just an overview. And then the next study is the uh, doctrine of covenants and how God deals with uh, human, the human race on the basis of covenants. So let's get into our study on sin and try to understand what it is. And let's begin with a definition of sin. Uh, as we look at the history of humanity, I think we can see that really it comes down to this. The history of humanity is the history of sin and God's response to sin. 
isn't it? It really just has to do with the devastating effects of sin in the human race and the incredibly redemptive uh, acts of God, the powerful acts of God in redemption, redemptive history. And the two of them are obviously intertwined and woven together uh, in a marvelous way. Uh, but that's the history of the human race. So whether you're talking about history of wars and uh, of, of economics and the rise and fall of empires and all that, behind it all, we as Christians know the real story here is the story of sin and of redemptive history. So we're, stri- we're dealing with this. And frankly, if we look at our own lives, that's the same case as well. I mean, how much does sin cost you, really? Think about it. I mean, that's actually, you'd rather not think about it, wouldn't you? It's a devastating thing. Every trouble you've ever had in your life, every grief, every sorrow and sadness is there in an absolute sense because of sin. But in many cases, it's there directly because of your sin, because of things you said and done and shouldn't have, etc. All of the times that you lack peace in your life, that you lack joy, um, almost always it's traced in some way to a way that you violated your conscience to sin. So this is a devastating issue. We've We've come at it again and again because it's so much the issue of ministry and the ministry of the Word and pastoral ministry. We did it when we studied John Owen's book on uh, mortification of sin and temptation and all that. And so we come at it in a little bit different way tonight. Now, how does uh, Grudem define sin? Well, he defines it this way. It's any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So therefore, what Grudem is doing in that definition is he is making God's moral law the standard for human behavior, attitudes, and nature. And that is so significant. We must have a standard. If you don't have the standard, you can't talk about sin. Do you see how difficult, therefore, it is to talk about issues like gay marriage when you don't have a standard of righteousness to compare anything to? It's really quite remarkable and really quite a waste of time. Because, you know, the, the bottom line is if we don't have some absolute standard of right and wrong, you're really not going to be able to find common ground to have a discussion. Their discussion, their, their views will be every bit as valid as anybody else's. And so we have a standard, and that is God's moral law. Now, in this definition, we can see that sin is broader than just actions. We tend to think initially of sin as just something you do. I mean, that's kind of the first way that we think of sin. It's something you do. It's something you commit. Then as you grow, you start to realize it also is something you didn't do, right? And therein a whole other category of things comes in, sins of omission. But then you begin to learn as you're reading the scripture and learning more and more what the Bible says, that it also has to do with attitudes. It may have nothing to do with anything you did. You may have done the right thing, but in your heart you weren't right. And so therefore there was sin there too. And then ultimately, as we continue to learn and grow, it gets down to our essential nature. We just are sinful. And and that's when we just start to see more and more this issue of uh, the pervasiveness of, of sin. Now, sin is... Uh, uh, a defeated foe in our lives. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, think about that. I, 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 can't, I can't stress that enough. Where sin abounds, what does the scripture say? Grace abounds all the more. It's so important for Christians to know and remember that. To remember that sin will not have the final word in your life. And it's important for us to do that because as we grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, you're going to see more and more of it, aren't you? Uh, and so we see that in the Apostle Paul's life as he goes on in his life and he ends up saying the greatest of all sinners. That's what he is. You know, uh, he says it's a trustworthy saying that Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. First Timothy 1.15. You know, but do you sense that he's morose? 
that he's just uh, kind of overwhelmed and, and depressed in some kind of inky, dark depression over sin. No, he's just stating uh, the reality from the way he perceives it. But he says, in the end, grace is going to win in my life. I'll tell you what, that is the buoyant force for me day after day to realize grace has a hold of me. And just as sin used to reign in death, now grace is reigning to bring me eternal life. That's a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing. So let's keep that in mind as we study sin. I want you to keep redemption in mind, even though it's not in the outline. Okay, so with your permission, I'm going to keep pointing us back to Christ and to his work for us, uh, because that's the great encouragement. All right, so what is... um what is sin? Well, it's a, it's a violation of God's law, God's moral law. It's broader than just actions. It goes also to intentions. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, the Sermon on the Mount gives us this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, I can tell you, I've witnessed many times and I talk to people and they say, you know, I'm, I'm basically a good person. I, mean, I haven't killed anybody. I'm thinking, is that all it takes to go to heaven? Just not be a murderer. And I'm thinking, flip it around, that means all the murderers are out? Well, no, they're in too. If you talk to them, they'll say that, you know. Well, you know. They don't, yeah, I only murder one person. Yeah, I only murder one person, this kind of thing. Uh, but the fact is that the Sermon on the Mount gives us a beautiful point of that. Jesus went beyond whether you actually committed the act of murder, doesn't he? You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. There, Jesus is probing the heart, isn't he? He's looking at the intentions of the heart. He's looking at what's within. And he's talking about motives. And so there are some people that, for a variety of reasons, are going to restrain themselves from actually committing murder. But their hearts are murderous. And Jesus is looking at the heart. And by the way, when you're witnessing and talking to somebody, remember to say, that, you know, the Ten Commandments that we face, the God's moral law, uh, that's what's standing over us. That is the law that God will use to judge us. Jesus is the judge. And therefore, Jesus' commentary on any law is of great relevance to your soul, isn't it? Since he's the judge, he's going to be sitting on your case. And when he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, such and such, you should sit up and take notice. And what he's saying is it goes beyond just the matter of did you commit the act. He's talking about the attitude of the heart, the disposition of the heart. This does the same thing with adultery. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then in chapter 6, he deals with even good actions, good deeds, like giving, uh, giving money to the poor, right? Or, or prayer or fasting. Those three are the case studies that brings in Matthew 6. And he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward uh, from your father in heaven. So just look at the grammatical construction of that. Uh, To be seen by them. What does that mean? What what are we talking about that? To be seen. What does that word to mean? That's your motive. It's your reason why you're doing the good act, right? Be careful not to do it for that reason. So here Jesus is even looking at a good action. And he's looking at the heart and disposition. And he's saying that it is not good if you're doing it because you want to get applause from people. And that's what he's getting at there. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. There's that to again, purpose. I tell you the truth, they have received their award in full. 
But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What is the point here? The point is that it's not just a matter of external body actions. It also has to do with attitudes of the heart. And then it goes um, in Galatians 5, Paul lists heart attitudes among evidences of the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft are all things that are done with the body, they're actions. But then hatred, discord, jealousy, uh, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, many of those are done inwardly, aren't they? They're dispositions of the heart. They're attitudes of the heart. And what Paul is saying here is that that's evidence of sin. It's an internal thing. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like, I warn you, as I did before, uh, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, uh, it's not then just a matter of actions and attitudes. It goes to our very nature itself. Sin is wrapped up in our very nature. Uh, it says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And very plainly in Ephesians 2, it says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature objects of wrath. By nature. By nature. So what it's talking about there is our essential nature apart from Christ. Now, the beauty of being a Christian is no longer our essential nature. You know, that's the I in Romans 7. I do not, you know, do what I want to do. There's this kind of almost schizophrenia for a Christian because we still have this body of sin which has a history of and a habit pattern toward sin. But we have a new nature too, don't we, that God created. And it's created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. But sin is still an issue. However, these statements that we're reading here uh, are talking about the unregenerate heart. Also in Romans 8.8, 8, it says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We'll come back to that verse later on. But it's just they're essentially displeasing to God. So there's nothing that can come out of that life that's going to please him in any way. All right? So that's uh, just a definition of sin. Now, some people give other definitions of sin. One of the most popular ones is that sin is selfishness. Sin is selfishness. It's that self-focus. Well, I don't deny that there's an awful lot of self-focus in the sinful heart. Um, but this is not a good definition of sin, I don't think. First of all, Scripture does not uh, define sin this way. Um, scripture does not give us a definition, sin equals selfishness. Secondly, much self-interest is good and actually approved uh, by Scripture. For example, store up treasure in heaven so that you could be rewarded, etc. Even better example uh, is that of worship. Uh, suppose you have absolutely no personal interest whatsoever in worship, but you're just going to go ahead and do it. Eric, you're here. What would you think about that? Is that worship? If the individual has absolutely no personal interest in what's going on, what would you think about that? Well, what would you call it if somebody has zero delight, but they're singing a, a hymn or a song or you know praying a prayer? Or they have absolutely no personal interest or delight in what's going on. What would you call that? False. False. Or what did somebody else say? Mechanical. Somebody, I think somebody said hypocrisy. I think that that's the, the essence of hypocrisy. Basically, hypocrisy is being an actor, putting a mask on. So what it is is you're doing something outwardly that you have absolutely no internal desire for. So if you're not feasting in worship, it really isn't worship. 
frankly, God doesn't need it anyway. It's not like he's got to hire us to get some, you know, like, like the medieval kings would hire some minstrels. He just likes to hear a song. You know, if we would just kind of come and sing, if we could sing for him, whatever makes you happy. Uh, he doesn't need that. There's, nothing, there's no need in heaven. He's got much better singers than us up there. Okay, they're doing a great job. But we need to worship. And so sin equals selfishness also might hinder this theme that there are some things we actually need to be self-concerned about. And frankly, the Bible is consistently appealing to self-concern. Uh, even in Ephesians 5 where it says, he who loves his wife loves himself. What is, how is that a motivation? Well, because love for self in one sense isn't wrong. Love your neighbor as yourself, for example, is not necessarily a wrong thing. But there is a kind of selfishness that is a subset, in my opinion, of sin. Frankly, I just think that sin is bigger than selfishness. It's bigger than selfishness, and there's some kind of self-focus that actually isn't sin at all. Okay. Um, also, much sin can can frankly be quite selfless. Look at look at a guy who's living in a in an idolatrous culture and cranking out an idolatrous religion, and at great sacrifice does certain things for that stone god that he's worshiping. Right. He's not really selfish at all, and yet he's sinning. So there's a whole bunch of sins that are really not selfish, but they're still sinful. So it's just not a good definition. And also such a definition, said Grudem, could suggest that there's wrongdoing on God's part in being self-focused himself, seeking his own glory above all things, which he does, as Piper argues in The Pleasures of God. All right, it's best to define sin the way Scripture does. Amen? Okay, so let's just do it that way. And 1 John uh, 3, 4 says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So basically, sin has to do with God's law. So the law, as we know, uh, Christ gave it, the law is summed up as follows. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two commandments. All the law and the prophets said Jesus hang on these two commandments. That is the law of God. Now, the question is, how is the law communicated from God to man? How does he communicate it? And I believe he communicates his law, his moral law, um, to us in two different ways. Every human being, first of all, has an internal moral code from God. This is what's called natural revelation. God speaks his law into our hearts. He speaks his law at one level into our consciences. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The second way is that God uh, gave the Jews the written law, the law of Moses. So Psalm 119 is an extended uh, psalm of praise for the written word of God. Oh, how I love your law. You know, that thy word or your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay? We believe that the revealed law of God is higher and clearer and sharper than the internal law that was given to everybody. It's an improvement. Even greater is the new covenant where God writes his laws in our minds and on our hearts. That's the best of all. That's a transformed nature to actually keep God's law, not just to read it on tablets of stone. But every human being has... At, at one level, the moral law inside their heart. And frankly, to go back to an earlier comment, that is our basis of hope in discussions with unbelievers on issues like gay marriage. Because inside their heart, they know what's right at one level. They just do. 
And so we don't, I don't spend a lot of time in apologetics kind of defending the Bible as the word of God. I just say, God says such and such. I just speak it because I believe that there's something inside their heart that clicks with it and resonates that it's true. Now, I believe they also suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but I think they know inside their heart what's right. Why do I know that? Well, Romans 2 discusses it. Romans 2, 14 through 27, very, very powerful uh, things. I'll tell you, the book of Romans is overwhelming, isn't it? I was looking back at some of my own sermons. I've preached so many sermons in Romans and page after page. And I, and I was just looking and thinking all of the ideas, the doctrine, the truths that flow out of this book of Romans. It's incredible. So, I mean, we're in Romans 9 and learning what's there. But Romans 2, which I preached years ago, there's so many things in here. But listen to what he says about the moral law written on the conscience of the Gentile. Uh, it says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So if you look at those verses, what is what is Paul saying there? Well, first of all, he says that the Gentiles do not have the law. Do you see that? He said it twice. Well, I believe that's the second type of the law, namely the written word of God, the law of Moses, that which was written with uh, the finger of God on tablets of stone, and then that which was spoken through the prophets and then written down on scrolls, the law of God. They don't have it. They don't have the written word. But, and it says it twice, so there's a kind of law they don't have. It says it twice. But they do have a law written in their conscience. It says the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Do you see that phrase? What does that mean? It's in there. Now, it's not in there in the same way the regenerate person has the law of God written in their hearts. It's a different level of truth, a different level of the revelation of the moral nature of God that the believer has. But every human being has, in some sense, the moral law written in their hearts. You know what that means? They're morally inexcusable for their sin. If sin is lawlessness, they need to know what the law is, don't they? They know. They know. They know that you can't, you shouldn't murder. They know that you shouldn't steal. They know that you shouldn't commit adultery. They know these things. And they know also in one sense that they should worship the one, the true, the only God because God has revealed himself in nature, but they suppress that truth and they worship idols. But the moral law of God is written in there. And this is a potent thought, isn't it? Keep it in mind as you're talking to biblically illiterate Americans and there are more and more of them all the time. They don't know much about the Judeo-Christian heritage that surrounds their culture. They don't know the Bible very well, but they do have the moral law of God written in their hearts. But then you've got the Jews and they have uh, the law of God. In verse 17 there, it says, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision, that means being a Jew, has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. 
If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be uh, regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law. Very interesting statement there, by the way, because you thought that circumcision was part of the law, right? But apparently there's a different kind of law that Paul has in mind that they keep. I just think this is a null set. I don't think there's anybody who does this. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law, apart from Christ, apart from Christ, the null set, will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Okay, according to our definition, what's another word for lawbreaker? A sinner, okay? So you've got um, lawbreakers who have the internal moral law and they break that. Those are the Gentiles. And so Paul says in Romans 2, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That takes care of everybody, doesn't it? That's everybody. They're the category of people who sin apart from the law. And what will they do? Perish apart from the law. And then there's the category of people who receive the law but don't keep it. Those are the Jews, right? Nobody kept the law except Jesus. Nobody kept the law and they will be judged by the law. So that takes care of the whole human race. What are we? We're a bunch of lawbreakers. We're a bunch of sinners. And so that's what I'm getting at. Sin is lawlessness. Now, sin is a very serious matter. It's a grave, a grave thing. It's a direct affront to the majesty of God. It's simply wrong because it violates God's perfect standard of right and wrong as revealed in his nature and his moral code. Grudem put it this way. Sin is directly opposite to all that, the, all that is good in the character of God. And just as God necessarily and eternally delights in himself and in all that he is, so God necessarily and eternally hates sin. It is, in essence, the contradiction of the excellence of his moral character. It contradicts his holiness, and he must hate it. As it says in Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So that, that's what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. Uh, it's rebellion against God's law. Now, where did sin come from? What's the origin of sin? Well, I, I don't know is my ultimate answer. I mean, we're going to study. We're going to look at some things. We know the story of Adam and Eve. I think we know also before that the story of the fall of the devil. And we'll talk about it a little tonight just because uh, the repetition of good, solid doctrine is good for us. But where, it, where did it flare up? Where did it first spark in God's pure, perfect universe? I cannot tell you. And there's not a theologian that's ever lived who can. Uh, they, they can't because we have certain barriers that we can't go beyond that are revealed in Scripture concerning the nature of God and His stance toward evil and toward the universe. We don't want those removed. They're biblical. They're right. I'm glad they're there. I'm glad that God hates evil and, and despises it with all His being, can't even look at it. I'm glad about that. I'm also glad that He's sovereign and rules over everything in the universe. I'm glad about that. But when you put those two things together, coupled with a third fact, namely that God created the universe good, I mean, pure and good just flowed out of his nature and out of his character, uh, good, you end up with a mystery, don't you? And you can't solve it. We don't, we don't ultimately know where it comes from. But let's try to find out some of the things um, that the Scripture says about this. First, the biblical barriers that we have to erect here. God did not sin and God is not to be blamed for sin. He, he cannot sin. It's against his nature. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4 says this. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Well, isn't that marvelous? 
Isn't that beautiful? It says of Christ in Hebrews 1, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That's his nature. That's what God the Father is like. That's what God the Son is like, God the Holy Spirit. They absolutely cannot do wrong. They can't do evil. They hate it. That's their nature, okay? Uh, again, James 1, 13 and 14, a very important verse. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Now, the, the question in front of us ultimately is, what is the origination of the first evil desire? Can anyone tell me the answer to that? Because I don't know what the answer is. It spung, sprung up, as we believe, in the heart of Satan. And then he tempted Adam and Eve and dragged them in as well, as he also, it seems, tempted uh, a bunch of angels to join him in his rebellion. But uh, we don't know where it originally started from. God did not sin and he's not to be blamed for sin, created being sin and did so by willful voluntary choice. Willful voluntary is Grudem's quote. It is redundant, but I put it in there anyway. Okay. Um, sometimes redundancy is helpful. I mean, they made a choice. All right. Uh, angels and humans uh, chose to sin. Secondly, God is absolutely sovereign. He's the ultimate ruler of his created universe, both spiritual and material, both visible and invisible. So therefore, we have to totally reject dualism. What do I mean by that? Well, the idea that good and evil are eternal principles in the universe and they just kind of battle it out all the time on more or less equal footing, right? Star Wars, yes. There's the dark side of the force. And frankly, all of the New Age-ish kind of teaching is essentially dualistic, yes. Where do you get that nature? It is the essence of being the created but, as having a nature separate right. from God. Yeah. Either you have God's nature or you don't. Yeah, I see, I see what you're saying, but the, everything he got from his nature, he got from God. That's the, that's the issue. You know, everything inside the, the firstborn seraph, as Charles Wesley put it, was good and put there by God. So um, keep thinking about it, but I'm just telling you, a lot of folks that made their living doing this for centuries have not been able to... Go ahead. Yeah, and the mystery is if you're going to look at uh, you're going to look at the at the passages like in Ezekiel and Isaiah that talk about the fall as we believe of so-called Lucifer or or the firstborn seraph and all that. Um, it says till evil was found in you. It's just an odd statement, and it doesn't explain anything. It just says, well, there it happened. Evil, Steve, you're going to say something. Yeah, can we can we describe sin as a not not a thing, but as a, a negation? So that sin is lawlessness, as opposed to law is godlessness, and it is uh, basically denial of the reality of God. It's a good way to look at it. Very, very good way to look at it. 
And whenever you're going to give a list of virtues, there's always a list of negations that go with it. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, and then there's a bunch of negatives. It doesn't do this, doesn't do that, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs and all that. So, yeah, you're, you're definitely dealing with that. But the sin is negating God. Is that what you're saying? His nature. Denial. Denial of God, yeah. And and when you read that, I think it's in Ezekiel where it says, till evil was found in you. That's That's what you're going to circle with a pen and say, there it is. But I can't explain it. Can't explain how there was no evil in him before that moment. <clears throat> and now there's evil in him. And God made everything that was there before that moment and yet is not responsible for the evil that pops up inside that being. So anyway, let's keep going. Um, and uh, you can come ruminate with me for as much as seven minutes afterwards. And then I'm going to go and write the rest of my Poland talks. Okay. <laughs> And then you can stay and ruminate with each other all evening long. Just uh, turn the lights out when you're done and go. Okay, uh, so we're going to reject dualism. You got the yin and yang, you know, that idea that you got to have both good and evil kind of just mixing together in the universe and all that. The Bible is decidedly not dualistic. The, the Bible is basically taking us and rubbing our face right in mystery all the time, saying that God could pull the plug on evil anytime he wants. He can speak it out of existence. He can destroy the devil. Look at the demons' reactions to Jesus when they see him. Are they like, all right, I'm ready. I've been, I've been training for this, and boy, am I ready. They are running for cover. They are terrified of Jesus. They are not fighting him on equal ter- terms, and they know it well, don't they? All they say is, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? And so there's a sense in which, hey, that's not fair. You said that, whatever. But they're not, I mean, if Jesus says yes, and then what are they going to do? Yes, I'm here to torture you before the point in time. Go into the pit. I mean, there's nothing that they can do. They're not fighting on equal terms. And I'm glad about that, though it leaves me with a mystery. What is the mystery? Then why doesn't he speak evil out of existence then? If his eyes are too pure to look on evil, why does he do so much with it? Habakkuk wrestled with that, didn't he? Because Habakkuk 113 is only half a verse there. Why then do you tolerate wrong, he says. That's the rest of the verse. And, and it's a problem. It just brings us to a mystery. But I'm happy to have the mystery along with the truth that God can, anytime he wants, speak evil out of existence. I, I'm willing to deal with Auschwitz and with the suffering and death of, of, of people that we love of children, of infants. I'm willing to deal with all of that misery to know that there's a purpose behind it and there's a God who rules over all of it ultimately, but who personally has nothing to do with it directly because he's so pure. I'm glad about those truths, although I can't put it all together. That's what I'm kind of dealing with here. So dualism is unbiblical. Star Wars is unbiblical. Star Wars is unbiblical. There you go. There is no, they're not equal. It's not use the dark side of it. It's not that none of that is true. All right. God rules over all things. I mean, isn't that beautiful to think that God could pull the plug on Satan's existence anytime? Because, you know, Jesus created all things, powers, principalities, whether things visible or invisible, all things. And through him, they all exist and have their being. They hold together at all moments. And, and that leads us to another mystery is, is why then is there so much struggle both in the heavenly realms and the earthly realms? You know, I, I'm dealing with this because I'm preaching in, in, in Ephesians. In Ephesians 6, it talks about our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You know, why do we have a struggle then? You know, why is there a struggle in the heavenly realms? Think about this. In Daniel 10, it talks about Daniel praying and seeking God and God dispatches a messenger angel to give him an answer. 
and he's described in the beginning of Daniel 10 as so awesome and so filled with light and glory that Daniel was terrified of him and fell away like a dead man. That's what he looked like, this angel. And the angel said, well, I wanted to be here earlier, but I couldn't get past the prince of the power of Persia. It took me three weeks. And frankly, I wouldn't have ever gotten past him if, uh, if Michael hadn't come to help me. So you're like, wow, is that what there is in the evil heavenly realms? Yes. Aren't you glad you're not in your own strength confiding, as Luther put it? You know, he, we're talking about some powerful beings. All right. But my question is this. Where's God for the 21 days? God is the 10 billion pound weight and they're a bunch of ounce weights and gram weights. Whatever side he goes down on, that's it. It ends it. But he's just up there watching the angels fight it out on more or less equal terms. Frankly, the, the evil angels are winning for a while. See what I'm talking about? He's just... And so they fight it out. And so do we. And we, we, we go through setbacks and, and you know, the kingdom doesn't advance as efficiently as, as it would. And he's just there ruling over it all. It's really quite a mystery, isn't it? But he can pull the plug on evil anytime and he can use it for his own glory. So God is sovereign over all things is what it teaches. Ephesians 1.11, in him we're also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. So the 21 days that the, 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 the angel was fighting through, it's part of God's will. Everything's according to the purpose of his will. That's what he's doing. Yes, go ahead. Yes. Okay, but if he pulled the plug on Satan tonight, if he pulled the plug on Satan tonight and ended the world tonight, are you going to uh, do uh, hermeneutics with God on Re- the book of Revelation? No. All right. Like it says in one hymn, God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. And so he interprets that incredibly complex book of Revelation. We're not going to say to him, but there's still all this to happen. I mean, you know, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins have told us what's going to happen and we haven't even gotten a book, whatever. You know, well, we're not be quoting the Left Behind series to God. I'm going to be delighted he comes and sets up his kingdom. I understand what you're saying. We're not in the dark as those who have not been told what's going to happen. Um, but what I, when I'm saying these words, what I'm saying is there's no lack of power. I'm, I'm dealing with the issue of dualism. And so there, it's not so much the issue of God. And God does constrain himself by his word. So I accept that point, definitely. But what I'm saying is in terms of essential power, they don't even compare he is far above. Christ is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Do you understand that? Far above the devil. They're, they can't even be compared. That's an amazing thing. I'm just, just basking in Ephesians all the time. Just Ephesians all the time. I just love Ephesians because that's what I'm speaking on in Poland. Right? But it says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You know what that means? You take your most expansive thought about what God could do and he is immeasurably more than that. That's, that's striking, isn't it? That's the power of God. And he is in that same proportion greater than the devil. That's all. He's just immeasurably greater than him. And it's good for us to know that. God rules over all things. He rules over things uh, that seem incredibly evil to us. Uh, I contend as a Christian, the most evil thing that's ever happened is the death of Jesus Christ because he's the only innocent man that's ever lived pure, innocent, holy, and yet there is God ruling over all of it in Acts 4, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, it's helpful to remember that Satan is by nature a Yeah, that's what I've been saying. And if he's a created being, then Christ is holding him together right now. 
And if he chooses not to hold them together anymore, he's not held together anymore. And there's nothing that Satan can say about that. That's what I mean by pull the plug on his existence. He can do that. Uh, you know, you think about the second coming of Christ. How does Christ destroy the Antichrist? By the breath of his mouth. And I think we learn just from Christ's incarnation. He doesn't even need to do that. He can just think it. He doesn't have to say a word. Sometimes in healings, all he does is just say, go home. You know, and they go home. It's like, well, where was the command? It, it was given inside, in the head. You know, he just thinks it, and, and it is. That's the way he is. So, yeah, that's Steve, thank you. That's, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at here. In Acts 4, um, Peter and John are talking about, about Jesus' death. And they pray a beautiful and a marvelous prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. I wish they kept going. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. <laughs> the Lord scoffs at them. Oh my goodness. Psalm 2, yes. But uh, anyway, they stopped and said something just as marvelous. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had determined beforehand should happen. Praise God for that. I mean, the most evil thing that's ever happened in the world, God said it would happen just like that. Go ahead. Okay, so Edward said, in ordaining that sin should be, God himself did not sin. Okay, good. Maybe that will be helpful for some of you. Uh, the top of the next page, God willed to permit evil to enter his universe in a way ultimately unknown to us. So that's my version. I'm not quite in, in the level with Edwards, but that's what I'm saying here about the same thing. God in some way willed that evil enter the universe in a way that he's not evil. All right. Uh, and God will someday judge all of it and cleanse his universe from all evil. Isn't that beautiful? There will be what it says in Peter, Second Peter, a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness, where righteousness lives. That is so beautiful. Now, the entrance of sin in the human race, you know this order pretty well, I would think. I'm not going to support them with Scripture, but I could do that. I'll just give it to you. First, God created spiritual beings, angels, and created them good and pure. Secondly, some of those angels fell from goodness into evil by rebelling against God, following the devil, himself originally a good angel. Third, God responded by casting the devil and his angels to earth, putting them under an irrevocable sentence of eternal condemnation. Anytime that you're thinking about like Romans 9 and is God really fair and unconditional election, all that, realize there is no salvation plan for the devil and his angels. None. Zero. There's no redemption. There's no savior. There's no atonement. There's nothing. Nothing for them except hell. And a little time on earth between now and then in which it says the devil knows that his time is short. All right? All they are are waiting to go to hell. That's what they, the, the demons are doing right now. They're waiting to go to hell and they're creating as much mischief and evil and trouble as they can in the meantime. What kind of existence is that? It's terrible. But anyway, that's what happened. Fourth, Adam and Eve were created good and righteous. Fifth, Adam and Eve were given one single law, just one. Do not eat from the tree in the center of the garden. That's all. That was their law. Remember, sin is lawlessness. Without law, there can be no sin. But there was a law. Don't eat from that tree. Sixth, Eve was deceived by the serpent, which we believe to be the devil. 
who lied to her about the benefits, so to speak, of eating the fruit and the absence of consequences. Seventh, Eve ate the fruit, gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Eighth, immediately their eyes were open. They realized they were naked. They tried to cover themselves. Ninth, God came to confront them and they were terrified. They hid from God. Tenth, God confronted Adam first and then Eve and then the serpent. All are cursed for their role in sin. Eleventh, God ascribed Adam's sin to the entire human race. Yeah, go ahead, Darcy. Right, well, we're going to get to Romans 5.12 in a minute. Um, but when we say into the world in Romans 5.12, I think what we're meaning uh, here, I mean, we have to believe that if the serpent is the devil, then sin is already so-called in the world. So therefore, I think Paul's using the word world differently there. I think he means the human race. It entered the race and uh, this world's order. I actually believe uh, that God brought the devil to Adam to the tree to be judged. And the devil went on the offensive. <laughs> and kind of suborned the court, kind of paid off the judge, so to speak, got him under his hire and kind of took over the whole court. And so God went to redemptive history and went to ultimately to the cross. Yeah, go ahead. I have a question about uh, B and D, mm-hmm. the word good and D, good and righteous. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam and Eve were not created good and righteous. Were they created innocent, whether they mm-hmm. were untested, unproven, and not yet good or well, I just use the word good because it says in, in Genesis that God saw all that he, is, he had made and it was tov. So the, the way to translate tov is good. That's the way we usually translate it. But, uh, Untested, I agree. Innocence is different than righteousness. I, I would say so. Um, although, you know, I, I, in a way, it's a theological point that could be made. I, I think what you're saying is they're untested, they're waiting, they're coming to the, the tree, and at that point, they will receive. But I, I'm just kind of expanding on the idea in which God said all things were good. Uh, What you're talking about, and I believe very much, and this is incredible, that what we end up with in Christ is better than what Adam and Eve had before the fall. That's incredible when you stop and think about how gracious God is to us. When we are finally done being saved, when we are in our resurrection bodies, when we are as perfect and righteous as Christ, we'll be in a better position than Adam and Eve were before they fell. Now, that is grace, friends. Just meditate on it a lot. Now, the order about what's happening with the devil and his angels, believe me, guys, whatever's on the sheet um, is not above Scripture. Um, It's just an ordering. Um, It makes logical sense. The reason I think that the devil, I mean, that the angels uh, were created first is because it says that they rejoiced when God created the world. That's in the book of Job. And so they're kind of watching. So he creates the, the principalities, the heavens, so to speak, first. And then the rebellion happens. And so clearly... Uh, the devil's fall has to happen before Adam and Eve fell. So that's how we get that ordering. Anyway, um, now let's zero in uh, uh, a bit on this why question. Sin's essential nature is irrational. Another word for irrational is insane. There's an essential insanity to sin. Okay, And it's good to keep that in mind. The why question can never be fully answered, even though it is frequently asked and usually by parents. Why did you do it? We've explained it again and again. Why, why, why? Sometimes I just don't ask it anymore. What's the point? There can be no answer. There is no answer to the why question, right? It's just insanity. 
you know, ask it of yourself. You know, why did I do it? You know, I know, I know how it turns out, but there I did it again. Ezekiel 33:11. Even the Lord asks the why question. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I mean, that's a question. Why? Why would you do that? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Why not repent and come into the kingdom and live with me forever and ever in eternal blessedness? Just why? How can we even answer the why question? Or this one asked by Nathan to David. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Isn't that incredible? What an amazing statement that is right there. But there's that word, verse nine. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? How can you even answer the question? It really can't be answered. Why? It's irrational. What could be more insane than rebelling against the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent king of the universe? Can anyone tell me? That? I mean, what, what could be more insane than that? I'm going to take you on, God. See what you, Do your worst. You, you don't want him to do, do his worst. That's called hell. Why would we do that? It's insanity. What could be more insane, speaking more positively, uh, than turning away from the goodness of him who's, in whose presence is the fullness of joy? in whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16. What could be more insane than that? To think you can craft some pleasures that would be better than those that are found in God's hand. It's insanity. What could be more insane, frankly, than continuing to sin when all it ever does is bring pain and distress? I've said before, psychologists tell us that the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over, thinking you'll get a different result. Well, isn't that what sinners do? I think I'll try it again and see if it works out. I actually say that to my kids. I wake up and I say, okay, isn't it beautiful? God's given us a whole new fresh day. And I mean, nothing's happened today. It's a clean slate. His mercies are new every morning. But sin is standing there saying, pick me, pick me, you know. And, and you're looking and God has given you a memory so you can remember what happened last time you picked sin and how it went. Okay, so why would you do it? And it all makes perfect sense up front, but at the moment of temptation, things get a little confusing, don't they? All of a sudden, things aren't so clear. But it really is insanity. That's what sin is. All right, now, this doctrine of original or inherited sin is a very challenging one to us. I actually find it, I have to be honest, I personally, as a man, as a Christian, find Romans 5 harder than Romans 9. I think, frankly, if you get Romans 5, Romans 9 makes a lot of sense. But the question is why we're held accountable for the sin, a sin we didn't personally commit. Uh, and, and the issue isn't just inherited guilt, it's inherited corruption. Because the answer ultimately given by most theologians, and like me, uh, I'll say it, is that we are never judged for Adam's sin. We're judged for things we did, ways we broke his law. How do I know that? Because it says, next page, I think. Uh, where is it? Oh, there it is. It's at the bottom of the same page. Romans 2, verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he has done. That's the principle of judgment day. So you're not going to get sent to hell for Adam. You'll get sent to hell for what you did if you're not a Christian, the ways you broke the law. But here's the deal. We believe that in the doctrine of original sin, you don't just inherit um, the guilt of Adam's sin, but you inherit a corrupted nature. 
and you're saying, well, I don't, I don't see that. I don't understand how that could be fair, how it could be right, etc. And and it's a it's a de- it's a it's a deep question. It's a, a deep issue. But this is what it teaches. First, you have to go to de- is is this what it teaches? And Romans 5:12 through 21 is the so-called original sin or inherited sin passage par excellence. There's nothing else even close to it, although there are other certain verses that teach the same thing. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, and here's the phrase, you can circle it, because all sinned. Do you see that, those three words there? What does that mean, because all sinned? Because all who sinned? All human beings sinned in Adam. We all sinned when he sinned. Because all sinned. For before the law was uh, given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. Uh, And then he he just parallels with Jesus, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also as the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. And then here it is in verse 19 again. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. Do you see what that means? What it's saying is that we inherit a corrupted nature. We're made sinners in Adam. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now, you look at that, and in effect, what is happening is that Paul is setting up a parallelism. He's setting up a comparison between Adam and Christ. And what he's saying is that what we receive from Christ is far greater and better than what we receive from Adam. Um, it, It just has a far more pervasive and powerful influence. He's comparing the two, and Christ compared favorably. The ultimate answer to is it fair or not is how do you hope to get saved for the sins you actually committed? You don't deny that you committed them. You don't deny that you violated your conscience or said that mean thing or did that wrong thing. You don't deny it. You know that God is holy. You know that there's a judgment day coming. What is your hope? How are you hoping to deal with it? Well, Christ. Now you see. All right, because God is incredibly consistent in this matter of what we call federal headship, representation. Adam represented us at the first tree. Christ represented us at the second tree. He's very consistent in this matter. The only way that it's not 100% consistent is that every single biological descendant of Adam gets the effects of his, but not every single biological descendant of Adam gets the second. We become in Christ through faith, and that's how God has chosen. But uh, ultimately, there's a parallelism here, and we cannot charge God with wrongdoing because that's the very same way we get saved in Christ, our so-called second Adam. So that's this doctrine of what we call inherited original sin. We get from it inherited guilt and we also get um, inherited corruption. Next page. Um, David uh, put it this way in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And Psalm 58.3, even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are uh, wayward and speak lies. Now this does not mean that every human being is as evil as they could possibly be. 
there are some constraining forces. You know how the church is called to be salt and light? I think salt is a constraining force uh, retarding corruption in the world. Civil laws are a retarding force restraining corruption. People do less evil than they would do because they're afraid of what will happen to them by the government, right? And don't let anybody tell you the death penalty is no deterrent. First of all, I don't know how they could know that. I mean, how can, how can you know that? How can you know that there's just nobody out there that's even worried about the death penalty? Second of all, it's very counterintuitive. I mean, I would, I would be afraid to die in a gas chamber or whatever. I, I mean, I, to me, I think uh, that it is a deterrent and the Bible clearly says, then all Israel will hear and be afraid. So to me, that settles it exegetically as well. But, but I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at here is there are some things that restrain evil in the world. So we would not think that the doctrine of so-called total depravity or sin, that we are as wicked and evil as we could possibly be. Neither are we saying that human beings as sinners cannot do any good things. We just can't do anything that's accepted as good spiritually before God because he sees to our heart nature and we didn't do it for his glory. We didn't do it to honor him and for his name's sake before we're Christians. Now understand, after we become Christians, we can do good works which are prepared in advance for us to walk in. Isn't that wonderful? You can actually do good works once you become a Christian. God actually sees them as good works and he'll reward them as good works. It's it's so beautiful what God has done for us in Christ. Now this quote concerning original sin I found before and I quoted to you before, but I find it striking. This is a police study in San Francisco on juvenile delinquency uh, cited by Jim Eliff. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants, his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch or whatever. Deny him these and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge and no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy every want, every child would grow up a criminal, a killer, a thief, and a rapist. That's a secular report. Now, one thing that we would have to acknowledge, no matter how much we wrestle with Romans 5, is the reality that we see around us in the world. Do we not find sin to be a universal cross-cultural phenomenon? If you were to go talk to parents in China or Brazil or France or Canada or in the U.S. and ask, is this true to the, I mean, yes. We, basically, we say yes. If you go more and say, was well, it true of you? Yes. It's universally true. And as my systematic theology professor said, if you take a coin and flip it and it comes up heads, you know, two, three, four times in a row, you consider it remarkable. If it comes up heads six billion times in a row, you say, let me see that coin. (laughs) What's going on? Something's up with the coin, right? Because that's just not natural, all right? There's something up. And every single human being in every single age in history, in every single culture is a sinner. They will tell you. They will testify to it. We say it about ourselves. How do you explain that except for uh, this doctrine of inherited sin? that we all have from Adam a position of guilt before God and a corrupted nature. You know what this means? We need a savior. It means that Jesus' entry into the world is a fantastic blessing from God apart from which we have no hope. That means Jesus is worthy of worship, that we should trust in him for our salvation. That's what it means. 
means you cannot work out your salvation apart from Christ. Um, some of the other verses that I teach here or, or that are in here, I think, are teaching the same thing about the uh, nature of original sin. You can read them. Any questions about sin so far? Peter? grace it is just grace because there's no works that we commit that we do that are pure and perfect none but what god has done is he's chosen to cleanse and purify our works and accept them because of christ so that's an amazing thing we're going to get rewarded for imperfect works done not totally for his glory you know i mean that's an amazing thing when you stop and think about that that's just great grace is the best way i put it by the grace of god first corinthians 15 by the grace of god I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. He's talking about his good works there, but he gives glory to God. Yeah, go ahead, Darcy. Yeah, we're not we're not going to hell for there's no scriptural evidence that anybody goes to hell on the other side of judgment day because of Adam's imputed guilt. There's abundant scriptural evidence that the court is seated and the books are open and the dead are judged according to what's written in the books. So that's what I get out of it. And that leaves me uh, ending up thinking certain thoughts about infants that die in infancy. Others think I go beyond scripture and saying anything about those we can't say. But I just think that, you know, there's nothing written in the books about them, you know. One last question, then we'll um, be done. If you were witnessing to someone who was that biblically illiterate American, and uh, this individual is not doing anything he or she considers wrong, that, but yet you could get them to admit it is wrong to murder or it is wrong to do certain things, how would you use that? Because their conscience could say, I haven't done those things. Well, we don't know totally what their conscience is saying to them. I actually uh, speak quite directly and think uh, that their conscience will tell them that anger is wrong and that they have been angry, that Jesus spoke the truth when he said it's like murder. And so I'll say, I'm going to pray that you will not sleep tonight bothered by your angry outbursts or your frustrated irritations toward people. And you'll start to realize you need a savior and that Jesus is the only one who can save you from your anger problem. And and I'm going to pray that tonight, that you'll have trouble sleeping. I've, I've never had anybody come back and say, I just couldn't sleep all night and now I'm a Christian. It's never happened yet. But maybe it did. Who knows? I've actually prayed that, though. And so I'm appealing to the Romans to knowledge of what's right inside. Even though they're suppressing it, it's there. I think we know that anger is wrong, and I think we know we do it. So that's a great question. Let's, uh, let's finish up with prayer. Lord, thank you for this time tonight to be together and to study your word and I just uh, am grateful for the way that it brings our minds to places that they wouldn't go otherwise. We thank you for its depth. We thank you for its clarity and its truthfulness. Father, be with my brothers and sisters. Be with me as we realize our position in Christ, holy and blameless in his sight through the blood of Jesus. And as we realize that there is not a single sin that can come to us with any authority over us, that we are no longer slaves to sin, that sin has no mastery over us, and that if we sin, we just do it out of, out of habit, really. And that we are able to stand firm in the day of testing by the power of Christ. Help us to put on our spiritual armor and stand when the devil comes. And Lord, that we will glorify you by being righteous in this life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. 
Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.